This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Kelvin Harris there. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, writer and academic Joshua Badge joins us to talk about the Australian government's family law inquiry and the politics behind it. We also chat with sports policy expert Kirsty Miller about inclusion and diversity at the AFL. And at 4.30, QR code explores sex workers' health, peer support and the law. You're listening to 3CR Radio. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their financial support of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. And I'm joined in the studio by writer and academic Joshua Badge. Joshua, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. We have a family law inquiry chaired by Kevin Andrews and Pauline Hansen is the deputy chair. How did we get to this point? Oh, that's a big question. Um, we can rewind a little bit and go back to 2006 where the Howe government uh, introduced some new laws that were intended to favour fathers in custody battles. So these were the so-called friendly parent provisions. And the effect of these was that women who raised their partner's violence uh, during court proceedings could be found to be antagonistic when it came to deciding about issues of custody. So the principle here prioritised parental contact, especially for fathers, over protecting children from physical or psychological harm and uh, from being exposed to abuse or neglect. Uh, so since then, there's been this kind of back and forth uh, on the matter of reform in this area uh, between the very urgent need to protect women and children and some rather empty claims that men face discrimination in the system. So thinking about the current uh, law inquiry that we're talking about, it's definitely an exercise of a political nature. Uh, so there was actually a Law Reform Commission report only six months ago, and last year there was a House of Reps inquiry, uh, and both of them had dozens of recommendations that haven't even been looked at by the government. It, you know, it's a bit irregular to have a one-nation senator to be deputy chair, uh, so it seems to suggest, and Labor has suggested, that there's been some kind of you know behind-the-scenes deal trading this inquiry for support of something else. You know, in, in a 
a way, it's kind of strange to have Andrews and Hansen uh, as chair and, and deputy chair. They're a bit of an odd couple, you know. Andrews is a very conservative Catholic and Hansen is a twice-divorced atheist. However, they kind of overlap on this issue and a bit in terms of their motivations. You know, Hansen's kind of main political weapons have always been anger and fear, usually directed against Indigenous people or Asians or Muslims and immigrants. And, you know, the idea that men are being hard done by in the justice system and in society is one of her go-to talking points. Andrews is doing something a little bit similar, you know, post uh, postal survey particularly, some conservative faith groups are afraid and angry about the kind of social and legal changes that have been happening in the country in the last 20 years. So, you know, fear and anger can motivate a constituency to vote one way or another. So that's kind of how we've arrived here. It's interesting politically, isn't it? Because, of course, Kevin Andrews is from the right-wing rump of the coalition, one mm. of the former Abbott supporters. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Pauline Hanson is a crossbencher in the Senate and the government needs her vote. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of, you know, talk us through a bit more about some of the political rewards that the Prime Minister might have in mind here for Kevin and Pauline? Oh, I mean, that's a really big question. It is, uh, isn't it? It's, it's almost like it's a holy grail for both of them, isn't it? Yeah, in a way, you know, Hanson's been talking about, uh, you know, what we could call MRA or Men's Rights Activist talking points for years, you know, the idea that women lie about abuse or uh, intimate partner violence in order to gain custody of children or some other kind of advantage. So, you know, she's kind of claimed credit for the whole inquiry herself. It is a, her kind of little pet project. It's almost a reward in, in itself, Yeah, and of course women's groups are saying that basically she's got quite an anti-women approach because of some personal circumstances surrounding her son in the family law system Mm. that seems to have uh, perhaps clouded her perceptions of, of, of the system. So would you say they're biased appointments? I would definitely say that they are appointments that lack a lot of credibility. So as you say, Hanson's son was involved in a family law dispute. And so in an extremely unethical move, uh, she used parliamentary privilege to accuse her son's ex-wife of making up claims. And Kevin Andrews then refused to disown those comments. Um you know about any of the comments that she's made on this matter Hansen hasn't really provided any kind of evidence beyond personal anecdotes and that's really just because there isn't any evidence for what she's saying uh, we know from jurisdictions like Canada that uh, non-custodial parents usually fathers make you know, roughly twice as many false claims. And we know that, you know, in Australia, for example, the only 3% of fathers who go before the family court are actually refused access. The overwhelming majority of family court matters are resolved with both parents retaining uh, access and visitation rights to their children. So, yeah, definitely, uh, it's definitely questionable appointments there. What's the inquiry's terms of reference? So, According to the Prime Minister's office and their kind of uh, formal press release, the term of reference are, in their own words, quite broad. So there's about a list of 10 or so items. And then at the end, there's a, a final provision that just says, and any other related matters. So it's kind of like an uh, an unsigned check almost. You know, it's a bit of an open-ended inquiry in terms of where Andrews and Hansen uh, want to take it. Which aspects of this inquiry concern you the most? Oh, I mean... I think that really thinking about the perspectives of the chair 
chairs. Uh, the chair and the deputy chair are really the most really concerning parts. Uh, so, for example, Kevin Andrews recently attended a far-right gathering in Hungary where he presented a speech on uh, the quote-unquote declining birth rates in the world uh, alongside anti-LGBTI hate groups and alongside speakers peddling the uh, neo-Nazi uh, white genocide or white, uh, great replacement myth. And, you know, kind of further to that point, Andrews has regularly spoken at anti-LGBTI hate groups and is a vocal opponent of queer rights. You know, during the uh, postal survey, uh, he committed to voting against any bill regardless of the outcome. So he, he committed to voting against his own electorate. And he had that really embarrassing gaffe where he compared gay couples to cycling buddies. He wasn't embarrassed about that, but I was embarrassed for him. Thinking about uh, particular concerns, this is, you know, kind of moving into hypotheticals. One of the terms of reference to investigate is the impacts of family law proceedings on the health, safety and well-being of children. You know, that's a little bit broad and there's a lot of areas where family law kind of meet, you know, queer children or queer families, you know, issues around uh, transitioning or, you know, affirmative health care, custody battles between parents, you know, potentially where only one parent is queer, disputes over conversion therapy. There's quite a few kind of directions that this could go in. It's very early days and it's difficult to say from these very broad terms of reference, but there's definitely some things to keep in mind. I guess in the broadest terms, in the in the broadest way of thinking, um, the problem is that the whole inquiry itself is kind of a step backwards. You know, intimate partner violence and domestic violence within queer communities and queer relationships is understudied. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, funding or resources for it, and all of the uh, resources that do exist are geared towards heterosexuals and uh, cisgender people uh, who have a whole other range of needs. So this inquiry is really just diverting time and energy and resources of the government, of the press, of us who have to get involved to make sure that it's not going to be used against us, um, that really just need to be put towards actual problems and not just imaginary ones. Can we expect the ideology that led to the religious discrimination bill being put up by the Morrison government actually kind of, you know, manifesting itself in, in this inquiry as well. What should we as an LGBTIQ community be scared about? Yeah, I think this is a really tricky question. It's, it's a bit speculative. I think that in a sense, you know, this inquiry can be viewed you know, as kind of parallel or tangential to the religious discrimination bill, and that it's kind of a consolation prize, you know, after the legalization of same-sex marriage and after abortion decriminalization in New South Wales particularly, um, some extremely insular conservative faith groups feel that they're kind of under attack. So the religious discrimination bill is kind of a ham-fisted way to secure a positive right to discriminate for them. Uh, and this inquiry is kind of, uh, you know, just a bit of a song and dance meant to appease them, you know. It's not really needed and there's no... No one has any confidence in the people uh, running the show, but it's kind of a, a signal, if you will, from an evangelical prime minister to similar constituencies that someone is willing to fight for their kind of unfair advantages. And I guess the most obvious point might be around divorce. Uh, you know, Andrews is a divorce sceptic and believes that the family court should play some kind of role in trying to encourage or coerce couples into uh, reconciling their differences. And obviously, uh, you know, what that looks like in an in instance where there's violence or abuse or manipulation is obviously extremely problematic. So how that could interact with, uh, for example, 
you know, uh, gay couples that got married after the postal survey and maybe things haven't worked out. Extremely complicated and difficult to say, but definitely something that we need to keep an eye on going forward. It's almost as if Kevin Andrews' religious uh, beliefs conflict with his role as chair of this inquiry. I mean, the Catholic Church does not condone divorce and yet Mm. he's chairing a, a family law inquiry. Yeah, I think this is a question that could really be put to him more forcefully by journalists. He's been asked uh, once, I think, about whether or not his views in divorce uh, compromise his ability to uh, make fair judgments in this matter. And I think that's, you know, as someone who was very vocally against same-sex marriage, you know, the same question could be put, you know, how uh, how adequately can you actually perform this role, uh, given your past history of campaigning and, and activism against uh, certain groups? He maintains that it's not an issue at all, but I think that uh, many of us are probably going to raise an eyebrow about whether or not that's true. You know, you look at Kevin Andrews chairing the inquiry, then you look at our Prime Minister and his own personal kind of religious views. You could almost think that the equivalent here in Australia of the Freedom Caucus of the Republican Party in the US has kind of taken over the Australian government. What are your thoughts on that as someone that studied the far right quite a bit? Yeah, it's... You know, Australia is a different beast to America. So, you know, the analogy might be uh, generally true, but there are some, you know, important differences that we probably don't have any time to go into. But I think that it is a question that does deserve to be asked. And I think that, you know, the press particularly are, you know, afraid to ask that question in a sense, because, you know, traditionally, you know, you leave your personal life at the door in politics, and then, you know, you have your kind of public life. And so journalists are kind of uh, anxious about asking how might actually someone's quite strong religious views affect how they might conduct policy or how they might vote on particular issues. So, you know, Australia's in a way having a kind of coming of age around the the ethics of asking those kinds of questions with a, you know, a very uh, loud and proud, if you will, Pentecostal prime minister. And so, you know, the appointment of an extremely, uh, you know, orthodox uh, Catholic with a history of campaigning against gay rights to a family law inquiry, you know, it's kind of the next step, you know, when will we start questioning what people are bringing to the table as such? Pauline Hanson often becomes overcome with emotion when she speaks. I imagine she's probably going to put her foot in it quite a few times during this inquiry as deputy chair. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, she's done that already with his, with her, you know, groundless accusations that women are making up claims, um, you know. And I guess that really just points to the fact that it's not, you know, it's not really about evidence. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having the inquiry at all. It's really about the kinds of the optics of it. You know, a government being seen to be doing something for particular constituencies, Hanson being seen to be standing up for this, you know, hot button issue that she has been kind of riding on now for years and years and years. Um, So, you know, it could be that the inquiry is conducted and nothing comes of it because it was never really intended to change anything. You know, the government's already sitting on two different inquiries with dozens of recommendations. Doesn't fill you with faith that they're necessarily going to follow through with this one unless they feel that it is in their interest for some way. So uh, I guess it's just something that we're going to have to wait and see about. And of course, you mentioned the broad terms of reference, the blank check mm. that could potentially, if this inquiry turns into a fishing expedition, uh, not augur well for Rainbow 
families. No, not at all. Uh, you know, the that's why the provision about children has me kind of raising an eyebrow because obviously we've just kind of, uh, you know, kind of seen the tail end of a really dedicated trans hate campaign in the Australian, um, and that's increasingly the issue that, you know, kind of dedicated political homophobes, if you will, have kind of taken up as their next kind of crusade. And so, you know, this inquiry with such a you know, a, a broad range of, uh, you know, inquiry, how that might kind of, you know, step off to the side, if you will, and go down a, a train to do with, you know, you know, young people accessing uh, gender affirmative care or, or you know, uh, early stages of transitioning or, you know, particularly when there is some kind of family difficulty, you know, if the parents are not supportive or if there's some other kind of complication, you know, the, the family court is not always in the nicest place and there are, you know, uh, there are things that could be done to improve it, but the way that this inquiry is framed is that it could definitely make things worse, uh, like Howard's reforms in the early 2000s. Joshua, thank you for coming into 3CR today. It's been awesome chatting. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Been chatting to Joshua Badge about the federal government's family law inquiry. He's Courtney Barnett.
It's Scotty Says. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. And I'm joined by Kirsty Miller, who is a sports diversity and inclusion policy expert. Kirsty, welcome back to the program. Good afternoon, James. Great to be back. Always great to talk to you on 3CR, Kirsty. Grand final eve. You've done heaps of work with the AFL on diversity and inclusion. Talk us through their diversity policy and inclusion policy for trans players. Well, the AFL did have a, a policy for trans people going back to around 2011, the first one, which mirrored the original OIC consensus guidelines, and they issued a new policy back in early 2018, and it's quite unique to all the other trans sports policies in the world. Number one, it is the very first which has lowered the level to five nanomoles per litre of blood, whereas the OIC and all other policies are at 10 nanomoles. But so number one, that, that that's unattainable for us to compete at sport for a trans person at um, five nanomoles, but I'll get back to that. But also the AFL has put additional criteria in where they, they measure the height, the weight, the bench press, the squat, the 200-metre sprint time, the vertical jump, and some match raw GPS data and a two-kilometre run, James. But mm. they're all arbitrary levels. There's no guidelines to say how quick you've got to run or how tall you've got to be or you know, what is the cutoff, you know, and are they going to measure the now the weight of women, you know, and... That, that's a dangerous precedent in itself, you know, with eating disorders and that type of stuff. But where the AFL policy really fails is there's no science and research that's actually going against wider policy where WADA recognises the XY body becomes very unwell and needs androgen support when they suffer hypogonadism, such as a, a person like myself transitioning, being an XY body. My body around 9 to 12 nanomoles starts to suffer hypogonadism. And within a couple of weeks when you suffer hypogonadism, your body breaks down, James, and mm. things like osteoporosis, muscle weakness, concentration, there's a whole gambit of medical issues which which occur. And it's really disappointing that the AFL you know, ignored the science, ignored the research and, and the other policies because unlike the OIC policy, if a trans athlete after 12 months, say, applies to play in the, in the Olympic Games, and they're considered to still have too much of an advantage in, in, in height, in physical ability, strength or endurance. Under the OIC policy, Section 2.2, the period of 12 months of reduced testosterone can be extended. So the OIC is more on a case-by-case determination, whereas the AFL has just made a blanket determination. And there's a big difference between a transitioning and a transition female. A transitioning female is someone who still has not undergone surgery and they have very different health needs to someone like myself who underwent the surgery about 13 years ago, James. So my, my body needs testosterone. I've been prescribed it. I'm actually taking it now and my health's coming back, but I can't play sport anymore under the policy. Mm. So so I've been wiped out of the game. So they haven't listened to us, unfortunately, and, and this will be challenged in the Australian Human Rights court because it is a human right breach determined in Toronto, Canada, with the case of Kristen Morley at 10 nanomoles, it was a human right breach. And we just saw in the last 48 hours, the OIC has decided to stall. There was talk about them reducing their their policy down to five. The OIC are aware of these human right breaches at five. So the AFL is really left, leaving themselves wide open to 
human rights discrimination cases. Why did they ignore the science, especially with this case pending? Well, the AFL, they asked for camps participation to, to help develop this policy. They, they cherry-picked, and mostly the, the people they picked out of the trans community to go on to, to be on this working party, they weren't the trans AFL players. They were soccer players or, or supporters, and so they hand-picked the people that they wanted to be on it. But even those people that went, there were some great trans people that did partake on it, and, and a lot of their wishes were just ignored. That was just a rubber stamp to say we had a few trans people there, unlike the Australian Sports Commission and unlike the Australian Human Rights and the major comps when they created the federal guidelines, at polar opposite, James, they were so inclusive of everyone. They listened to everyone's voices and they didn't go and put an animal limit on any of it on the um, federal guidelines. So the AFL just, for some reason, I believe they don't want us on the AFLW field. There's a different policy was meant to come out for the grassroots level. We're still waiting to have all us trans players playing around all the different comps in Australia. We're playing with our policy still today. So, you know, it's, it's not real good. It's probably the only major sport in Australia letting us down with the trans inclusion at the moment, the AFL. And not surprising, not surprising. They've got a long history of... An example, James, this season we've seen a couple of incidents with, with Kayla Harris with the, with the kicking and the, and the negative stuff coming on, on social media. And immediately the AFL jumped on and, and called out these people on social media. And they even banned these people from, from their club memberships. We've seen with Willie Rowley earlier in the year when he was faced some racism, immediately the AFL jumped on it and, and banned people that were on social media from, from their club memberships. Myself and Hannah Mountie have had numerous, numerous, hundreds of social media posts with the most putrid transphobia comments, and one in particular on Facebook. 18 months we've been trying to get the AFL to have this. It's from a Fremantle Docker supporters, official supporters club, have had a transphobic Facebook post for 18 months. For 18 months, I've been advocating the AFL to try and get it removed. I've advocated the Fremantle Dockers, and they come back and they can do nothing. So, you know, if it's racism, rightly so, it gets acted upon immediately. If it's sexism, rightly so, it gets acted upon immediately. If it's trans or homophobia, it gets pushed away, James. It's just token, you know. And myself, I was outed from the sport for three and a half years. Hannah Mousey was out of from the sport. And we see the Pride Games, the AFLW Pride Games. Their biggest achievement in their first Pride Game was they had gender-neutral toilets. Last year, the big news was Darcy Vessier wore a trans-coloured mouth guard. Well, whoop-de-doo, Darcy. You know, a trans-coloured mouth guard, that's an insult to the trans community. So AFL at the top level has to open up the doors, whereas a polar opposite at the grassroots level, we're seeing trans players being accepted all around the country and, and and no one's dominating they're all just one of the girls playing the game so you know it's the grassroots leading this when it should be the AFL leading this fight and leading the education and they're pretty much non-existent the AFLW diversity officer Tanya Hosh I've written to her a million times I've written to the AFL numerous times and they just don't want to know they don't want to know Kirsty, always great to talk to you on 3CR. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today. We're going to have to leave it there because QR code is up next, but we will talk again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Go the Giants. Yeah, cheers. Good on you, Kirsty. Talk soon.
This episode includes adult themes. Welcome to QR Code, a queer health series exploring diverse and intersecting community issues. My name's James McKenzie. In this episode, three queer sex workers share their insights about sexual health, peer support, and the impacts of stigma, discrimination, and the law. So my name is Gio, and uh, I'm a 32-year-old sex worker from Italy, and I've been in Australia for about seven years. Well, it's really interesting because it started all from um, coming from a financially abusive relationship. I was left alone and in quite a lot of debt, and so I decided to give sex work a go to try and pay off my debts and I was quite successful at first and so it all kind of snowballed into becoming a little bit more of a full-time career and yeah it was a lovely journey of empowerment towards financial independence. My name is Peaches. I've been in sex work for probably close on four years now working in, I don't know, doing all kinds of things, so from massage, escorting, brothel work. And, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bisexual woman, so, yeah. So my name is Maeve. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I've been in yeah, doing sex work since around 2016, um, so a couple of years, and it's all been brothel-based work, mainly in yeah, um, Nambu-Ranga, Melbourne. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> Sex workers do tend to be very, very on top of their sexual health, like in ways that non-sex workers cannot even imagine. So, for example, I think particularly in brothel contexts, like I will health check a client, so I'll do a visual examination of their genitals before beginning a service. So even things like if I don't think that they have an STI, but maybe they have a cut or something or like a, an open wound from an ingrown hair or something like that, is I, ha- I will then make a dis- an assessment of whether or not it's safe to go on with that service you know I have hand sanitizer next to my bed so if I'm touching them I'm using hand sanitizer before I'm touching myself just like little things like that that I think non-sex workers just like don't even comprehend the kind of levels that we go to to ensure our safety and every worker has like different kind of things that they'll do and so then, yeah, when you're kind of, when you're treated as a, as a vector of disease that needs to be like tested constantly and blah, 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 as this kind of public health threat, it just seems really absurd. And yeah. <laughs> One of the things that always mm, makes me laugh whenever I come out as a sex worker to people is the fact that they ask you, so, oh, but like, especially in like, on the on the dating apps like Grinder and Tinder, they would ask, "Oh, but um, so you know, are you clean?" Which is such a horrible word, uh, such a horrible slur. Essentially, want to know if you have any um, any STIs, any sexually transmitted um, disease. But uh, what they don't realize is that sex workers have always been at the forefront of uh, STD prevention. We teach clients about safe sex and how to perform sexual acts, trying to minimize the chances of getting an STD. And so, um, yeah, I feel like uh, we're really hard done by and like our labor on this uh, front is highly unrecognized. Essentially, it's you just have a nice, quick, thorough check. Sometimes it's essentially quite interesting and funny to try and find ways to check certain things, but also making the client feel like 
we're still like in the booking and still having fun so obviously there are specific areas around the genitals and the perineal area that you have to check to see if there is any you know any symptoms of an sti any skin rashes or any other stuff and yeah you essentially have to pretend you're incredibly interested in um, having a really good look at their balls and just you know and then just check and making sure that everything is all right and then if everything is all right you proceed with the booking and I guess the hard part is when there is something which like in that point like you probably like you just tell them look there is something wrong I think you should get that checked and here come we come back to sex workers being at the forefront of making sure that um, everyone's sexual health is in check like the amount of times too that I've taught clients how to do like their own health checks at home like visual checks and exactly you know told them exactly what I'm looking for and what they should look out for and that sort of thing like that happens really often and that's you know stuff that like I think it's useful for everyone to know. Um, yeah, like, but it's just kind of second nature because, you know, I have to do it. Um, yeah. Under the licensing system, we have mandatory testing, which means that so sex workers have to be um, have a full screen for STIs, BBVs every three months. Under the current licensing system, you know, HIV is still criminalised. If we're found to be working, know that we're working with an STI. That includes HIV, is that that's actually against the law. That disincentivises testing and it kind of goes against all current evidence. So... In the con- like, if you're working in a brothel or something, you have to go to either your GP or you can go to a sexual health clinic. And you get a test and you're given a certificate that says that you have you've had your screening. So then you have to go and present that to your employer to say that you can work. If you don't have that certificate, they won't let you work. And yeah, if you work privately, you are still. I'm fairly certain you are still required to have that certificate, but you're not you know, presenting it to anyone as such. You know, this is one of the funny things about licensing is it's actually so complicated. It's really, um, and I think there's actually like multiple pieces of legislation that actually kind of like govern the sex industry. So it's a little confusing and you kind of often you go off like, I heard this from this person and this person and blah, blah, blah. So I think this is the law. So, um <laughs> You know, I think that escorts are required as well to have that, but I don't think they have to necessarily carry the certificate or anything, but I don't know. One of the most annoying things, I don't like people poking and prodding around my body. Um, uh, The reality is that we should just be able to get tested when we need to. So say if a condom breaks or something like that, or if we have uh, unprotected sex, say, in our personal life or something, is that maybe we can go on an as-needs basis. It's just, like, it's super inconvenient and super invasive. So I, like many workers who are based in this kind of metropolitan area, use the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic for that. It's free and anonymous, but, like, that is questionable in terms of the practices that they, like, the I guess the information that they provide. I have had an experience there where I wasn't given the appropriate information. Like, I was kind of, it was suggested that I had to give more information than what I did have to provide and then that information is kept on record for x amount of years and there's not really anything that i can do about it so there's that kind of invasion of privacy um and then just like 
I think that's kind of like those practices are compounded by the fact that, I mean, I don't know, but I assume and I get the sense that the staff are sometimes a bit resentful of having to do it, maybe because they are medical professionals and realise that there's not really like... I don't know that it's medically dubious as to whether the testing regime that we have is effective, but also I think it has to do with homophobia and stigma, which is particularly acute in the medical profession too. So yeah, there are those issues around privacy and around like information in terms of the actual tests themselves. They're just quite like unnecessary on a lot of grounds. So it involves a swab tests like of the throat, of the vagina and or anus and like a... Uh, blood test for HIV on a three-monthly basis. But yeah, they're really quite a silly thing to go through in the sense of like sex workers are sexual health professionals. I do, I, when I do brothel work, I will do multiple like visual health checks a night. I know what to look for. I am very proactive with my own health because my income relies on it. But in saying that, though, like we are pathologized to a degree that no other, <laughs> well, I mean, no, not no other, but we are pathologized to a very particular degree. And like, I don't like I'm, that ties into the stigmatization of like STIs, which I think is also a massive problem. So I don't want to kind of be like, oh, well, you know, like <laughs> it's OK because I am like proactive, like you you have a right to not be like it's just that we are medicalized and pathologized in in ways that others aren't despite our incredible expertise and kind of the historical importance of sex workers in kind of responses because i've kind of been a, a stealthy kind of worker i've never really i've never really said to a doctor like even in sexual health that i'm a sex worker i just being a gay man i have like still access to a lot of testing to a lot of um, things and so I don't I never really felt the need to disclose it especially because I don't trust that the data is going to be shared like it's not going to be shared it's going to be kept confidential especially uh, for example what happened last year with the my health system that was so incredibly flawed in a way and like there are so many reports in countries that have adopted a my health system having the data like breached and shared with entities that should not have access to that that data and so yeah i've obviously opted out of my health so they don't have i don't have my health but yeah as an added measure i make sure to also never disclose to any doctor that i'm a sex worker I mean, I feel like the real, I always get a little bit of a test when I disclose to a doctor that I'm gay. It happened the other day going to a doctor, um, asked me if I'm on any medication and I mentioned PrEP and their tone, their the way that they perceived me completely changed and I essentially got dismissed within like literally 30 seconds in my appointment saying that I had like no issues whatsoever and so I feel like discrimination from health providers is a really serious risk. The documentation of me being a worker in particular circumstances that's an ongoing fear um, and that is particularly amplified within our model because I'm required to have like health checks, SDI checks on a three monthly basis which in themselves are very invasive and not backed by research and yeah, um, just wrong on a lot of levels. But in any case, like, I'm 
yeah, I'm really uncomfortable with some of the recording that goes on when I have to get those tests. Like I, you know, I, I have some control over that data, other stuff I just don't know and other stuff that like, you know, when I first started and I didn't know what my rights were in terms of maintaining my privacy, like there are many ways in which your privacy can be violated when you don't have that information. So there's that and that, you know, that affects who I disclose my work to and not. It affects how I go about um, fulfilling my unfair legal requirements. And in terms of like, I think mental health in particular, it's quite fraught. So I recently, well, I've had on a few occasions been looking for a, a psych or whatever, and like basically relying on like peers and the peer org for recommendations as to someone who could be verified as, you know, not going to be whorephobic or whatever and, you know, do silly things like attribute whatever you're going through to your work without you saying that that's the case or whatever. Yeah, that sort of thing where you're not receiving the treatment that you need because of that. And yeah, and there was a period last year where I needed a particular healthcare provider and I, I couldn't be certain that anyone that I found would be okay with sex work so I just didn't end up getting the healthcare that I needed I just put it off which is I'm sure what many have experienced because yeah it's it's quite a risk and it can follow you if you get the wrong person who doesn't yeah respect your privacy and your kind of <laughs> capacity to yeah decide what is or is not problematic in your own life yeah I'm lucky to have uh, a GP here that's explicitly like queer trans sex worker friendly, which is fantastic. But I have definitely had doctors who have, you know, advised me to leave the industry who have no understanding of the licensing requirements and that I do require STI testing and that sort of thing, making assumptions about my status and all that kind of thing that's just really ignorant and rude. But I think I I guess I would have a lot of concern as well for workers in rural areas in particular. I come from a small country town where there is no way I could go and tell my GP that I was a sex worker. And if I wanted a certificate to present at work, it would kind of be like fairly obvious, you know. I would probably have to go to another town really to get my my certificate. So I think, yeah, definitely for workers with less access in, in rural areas, it's, it's a lot worse. You're listening to QR Code, a queer health series exploring diverse and intersecting community issues. In this episode, we're exploring sex workers' health and wellbeing. Peer support is everything. <laughs> I don't think I would have lasted as long in this industry as I have without my peers. I think these days, I don't know, I seem to hang out with uh, non-sex workers less and less. It's so important to have people around you who actually understand your lived experience and I think it really is, being a sex worker really is sort of one of those things that I think you can't truly understand unless you've been there. You know, you cop a lot of stigma, a lot of discrimination. I think a lot of people can be quite well-meaning and still not quite understand how the things that they're saying and doing can be really loaded with assumptions and uh, yeah that can be quite quite isolating they can be assumptions about you know from really innocuous kind of comments about you know I hope that you know so long as you're safe at work and I sort of wonder well you know I mean would you say that to someone working in other professions that are unsafe so for example a, a paramedic so long as you're safe you know to 
you know, much more horrible things like making assumptions about whether or not you were sexually abused as a child and things like that, which are, you know, pretty offensive. So, yeah, it is so important to be around people who understand that. I think, you know, even within community, we do have issues with internalised homophobia. But of course, like actually being together and being around other sex workers is a great way to start to kind of break that down within ourselves as well. Um, Yeah, pivotal. I couldn't, yeah, imagine life without it. Couldn't do basic safety stuff without it. It was enormous for me when I started out. It enabled me to access information that I couldn't have otherwise. It gave me um, kind of historical information on, you know, yeah, what is available for sex workers and especially connecting with the peer organisation, our local One as Victim Collective. Um, I was able to get more information on stuff around services, like, in particular, but also just, yeah, helped me to understand, like, the very complex laws that are here as well. So, yeah, I, I could go on and on about that. Yeah, there are so many reasons that peer support is like super important yeah well i think it's important it's fundamental because the current situation in victoria like because there is no full decriminalization of uh, sex work we have to rely on uh, each other to um, learn things and essentially don't fall into specific traps or clients that are not particularly nice like we just have to rely on each other because we don't have any help coming from organizations i mean like decriminalization isn't a magic bullet you know and we see the same thing you know homosexuality was once a crime and when that was decriminalized it didn't obviously didn't end homophobia but i think it's a great starting point for us to actually start to you know if we're then seeing sex workers not as some sort of the sex industry as a seedy underbelly but rather as a perhaps slightly unusual, but, you know, normal profession, then we can start to break down some of the misconceptions about sex work that I think allow the more serious kinds of violence and discrimination to occur. I think some of the main ones that you come up against are that our work is inherently violent, that we should... You know, some people take it so far as to consider all sex work rape. For others, they think it's just a normal part of our lives. I think... You know, there's also the assumption that we are um, sort of vectors of disease, the assumption that we are all mentally ill, that we are all drug users, that we are all incapable of parenting and uh, maintaining romantic relationships and these sorts of things. And there are, you know... There are absolutely people with mental illness in our community. There are people who are drug users and all sorts of things in our community and and their experiences are valid and wonderful. But to make assumptions, blanket assumptions about the entire community is just kind of absurd. So, yeah. When I came out as a sex worker to my close friends, there was, there was always this, I've always been met with, oh, but are you being safe? Or like every, every stereotype that has been divulged about the sex work industry kind of came out. And I know they meant well, but at the same time, I knew that it was the product of criminalization. Also, a lot of I've lost a few friendships. I feel like a lot of people think that sex works is kind of cutting corners in life because like it's not perceived as labor when instead it's like very heavy labor. And so, yeah, some people 
I'm not sure if that's like jealousy or envy, but definitely there was an element of like people thinking this person is cutting some corners in life to get where they want to be. So I think that decriminalization would definitely help in uh, mm, making sure that everyone knows what the sex work industry is about and how important it is and uh, how incredibly tiring it is to be a sex worker sometimes and how like the money that we make is really hard earned. The emotional labor part of it is really important. Uh, I think, you know, when you're when you're with a client, you want to give them your 100%, you want to make them feel absolutely special. But sex workers, like just like every person, have their own lives. And so sometimes we might have um, a bad day, but then when a client comes, we suddenly have to switch all of that off leave those rooms and kind of enter into another room where we only have eyes for our client. And so I reckon that maintaining that illusion is incredibly difficult at times. So I reckon that's where the most difficult part about this job is. Our industry is criminalized or partially criminalized or like extremely heavily regulated and put in a way that like, organized in a way that is always detrimental to the workers and kind of discourages the workers from keeping doing these jobs. Sometimes I think of comparisons like with other industries and uh, for some reason I always think of bakeries and like I think of what if all of a sudden bakeries were not allowed to do certain things that they have to do in order to carry on with their business what if they were not what if a bakery was not allowed to sell on their own premises and had to hand deliver all of their bread around a neighborhood like what would happen and i don't understand why the sex work industry has all of these regulations well obviously it comes from stigma and yeah so it's really interesting to think about it that way and yeah, I wish that the sex work industry was as recognized as the baking industry. I guess like a central argument for decriminalization is that the criminalization of any part of the industry kind of drives it, you know, undergrounds, like in the sense that you are more reluctant to seek support if you need it. You're more reluctant to kind of be out in whatever way and that can affect your access to services it, it can affect how services treat you when something goes wrong um, as well as yeah other authorities that you might have to interact with so it would alleviate that risk to a an incredible degree although you know like decrim doesn't fix like stigma automatically obviously like it's a first step among like many it's just a it's a foundational basic step that needs to needs to be taken pretty much yeah i can only really speak to um brothel based work because that's the only work that i've like engaged in substantially in that sense like i think a, a massive problem with the licensing model is that it kind of balances a lot of power into the hands of the like licensee the owner operator as opposed to the worker and sort of yeah makes you reliant on them without you know having the legal rights of an employee but yeah, so we kind of rebalanced that in a sense of like giving workers an autonomy in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I guess it, like it would just make me feel a bit safer in terms of being out more. And yeah, the kind of I'm 
coming to a space where I'm almost fully out and, you know, in doing that, but not, yeah, <laughs> I've still got a way, way to go. Um, and a lot of the risks there for me and the barriers are legal ones and not knowing if those will be compromised, if certain people are aware, that sort of thing. So that would be alleviated and I could be a lot, you know, yeah, that would be, that would change my life in a lot of ways. But I guess prior to being at this stage when I was kind of semi out, that was really difficult because like, you know, now, um, yeah, I guess like there's a kind of all these sort of social stuff that comes with it. So like fetishization of sex workers, like as well as fetishization of queer people. Like, so if I had told the wrong person who was a bit of a creeper or whatever, like um, it was, you know, or anyone who really had like just questionable intentions toward me, it was a bit of leverage. Whereas, yeah, the more out I'm able to be, the less that that can be weaponized against me and the more control I can have over who knows and who doesn't know on my own terms and, you know, can manage the risks of that. Yeah, more according to, yeah, what I want to need. When everything goes well, you have a beautiful, steady income and that is really empowering, especially as um, as a, an immigrant to Australia. Having worked for a few like highly exploitative hospitality and retail companies before that, I think the community is, like, my favourite thing. Like, I've made some of the, like, my best friends in the sex industry. They are just, like, they're so smart and funny and just, like, incredibly resilient people and incredibly kind and giving, like, you know, I was sick recently and of course in the sex industry you don't get sick leave and it was amazing how much my friends took care of me and yeah so that's definitely been a massive positive and I think also just that you can always just kind of do something else try something different there's so much out there and it can be really like it can be fun and weird and funny sometimes the kind of situations that you find yourself in yeah other sex workers are like yeah <laughs> the best people yeah I've made incredible friends there particularly those involved in kind of political community stuff I've learned so much from them and I do continually there's uh, like just this incredible history and present of peer education within sex worker spaces and I'm so grateful for it it's like yeah kept me alive and also we're, we're just very fun um, that's great. Um, I've had some of the funniest experiences of my life doing my job. I've yeah, met some really interesting people and had conversations that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, I don't know. Just to be a part of a really vibrant, really politically staunch community is a really beautiful thing. It's taught me things about kind of, yeah, community and accountability that I've not learned in other political kind of activists yeah spaces that i've been in so yeah you've been listening to qr code thanks to geo peaches and may for sharing their insights and lived experiences for more information about sex workers peer support and sex workers rights go to vixen collective and scarlet alliance on your search engine qr code is produced at community radio station 3cr in melbourne on unceded Wurundjeri land listen and download our episodes at 3cr.org.au forward slash qr code Thanks to the City of Yarra for its funding support and the Community Radio Network for distributing the series. In our next episode, Mikhail Vishkio explores the mental health effects of erasure, othering and lateral violence in queer communities. Our theme music is Ritual for Transformation by Mikhail Vishkio. My name's James McKenzie. Until next time on QR Code.